finally return to the God-breathed words of Matthew's gospel where we left off last spring and took our break a little bit through, through Genesis. Uh, and we're here for our fall sermon series, which as you see is entitled Life in the Kingdom. Life in the Kingdom, because this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples about early in his gospel ministry in Matthew 5 through 7, what has become famously to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching and preaching that Jesus gave his disciples early in his ministry in Galilee on a mountain in Galilee. And uh, as we consider this, and the reason we have the title is because this is what this sermon is about. It's about what life in Christ's kingdom is all about. Or another way of saying this is what is the Christian life all about. If someone was to ask you, and I guess we have a number of our collegians who are back, you're back on the campus. If someone asks you, what is the Christian life all about? I've watched you, I've seen you, I've spent time with you. Can you explain to me what the Christian life is all about? And I just encourage you to rehearse that and write down an answer for yourself. Would you be able to give an answer? Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what comes out shares what's inside. Are we able to share what the Christian life is all about? And I raise this because sadly we live in a time and a place where we are confused about what the Christian life is all about. And if you ask any different group of people, you'll probably get a different answer. If they're Republican Christians or if they're Democrat Christians, right? Well, this past week, the New York Times posted an article about yet another prominent evangelical pastor, Matt Chandler, who had to step down because of conduct that was deemed to be not above reproach by his elders. And this was in reference to unwise or an unwise relationship via social media with a woman who was not his wife. Now, I draw this to your attention, not to throw stones. If the Lord was to weigh iniquities, who would stand? And for most of us, we've done far worse, honestly, than what Matt Chandler did, though I don't think it's wise. But I raise this simply to make this point. How confused are we, and that includes Christian leaders, about what the Christian life is all about? And how much has the Christian life and leadership in America become about so many things? And how much has the Christian life fallen away by what it's supposed to be about? Which is about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or another way of asking that is how much of the things that we do around church have absolutely nothing to do with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the tragedy, brothers and sisters. According to God's word, this is what the Christian life is all about. And this is the big truth for our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is going to be our big truth for today, that the Christian life and the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus. Did you have to come to church to hear that? 
And I would say, yes, we need to be reminded of that because our marriages, our homes, our lives become about so many other things. And before we know it, our worship becomes about so many other things and our education becomes about so many other things. And it doesn't take an awful lot for us to forget that what this is all about, it's about Jesus and it's about his life and it's about his kingdom, not my kingdom. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples about in Matthew 5 through 7. This is what he came to give his life for and to die for sinners like you and I. And it wasn't to teach us how to build a ministry or a megachurch. It wasn't to help us live a better life. Jesus is teaching his disciples in Matthew 5 through 7 what life in his kingdom is to be about and what it's not to be about. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll actually go back a verse. Okay, we'll go to the end of verse chapter 4. We'll go to 425, and we'll read the first uh, 11 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. And so begins arguably the most famous and most frequently quoted sermon in the history of the world. And to make that point, I wanted to go over a few quotes. And if I could have my next slide, please. I believe that God knows what each of us wants and needs. It's not necessary that I make it to church on Sunday to reach Him. That's God. You can find Him any place. And if that sounds heretical, my source is pretty good. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That's old blue eyes. Right? The chairman of the board. I did it my way. And then more recently... The Sermon on the Mount's wider quote-unquote message of tolerance and love was cited by President Barack Obama in support of same-sex civil unions. And he said, if people find that, that referring to same-sex civil unions, controversial, then I would just refer them to the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is, in my mind and for my faith, more central than an obscure passage in Romans. Well, at least... Barack Obama knows about that passage in Romans. But lest you think that the Sermon on the Mount is just for Democrats and liberals and progressive Christians, 
December 19th, 2021, recently, Donald Trump Jr. made reference to the Sermon on the Mount in a speech to young conservative evangelicals. Quote, we've turned the other cheek, reference to Matthew 5.39. And I understand, sort of, the biblical reference. I understand the mentality. But it's gotten us nothing. Okay? It's gotten us nothing while we've seeded ground in every major institution in our country. Just lets you know, it's right across the spectrum, okay? Now, whatever you may think about these men and their politics and their use of Jesus' words, I'm going to propose to you the real tragedy here is that their interpretation and their use of the Sermon on the Mount is merely the way most American Christians read their Bibles and read God's Word. We focus on the points that serve our agenda and they validate our desires and we basically just toss the rest. And we ignore the context, and we ignore the counsel of God's word, and worst of all, we ignore the one who gave us the word, the source. Now, if you notice, I'm going through all the points that you need to get ready for Logos, right? About how do we rightly understand and interpret God's word. And that's where we're going today, brothers and sisters, because Matthew essentially spends four chapters laying down how to interpret the Bible and how to do it with integrity. And Matthew considers the context of Jesus' life. He considers the full counsel of God. And he also considers the source of the words from where they come. And he doesn't just cherry pick, as people say, picking things that make him look good or that validate him. We've got to be mindful, brothers and sisters, as we look at this and before we throw stones. This is sadly what we do. We pick those parts and the counsel that we hear. Or we go for biblical counsel and we get the parts that tell us that we have a better life and we latch on to those things and we don't hear anything else. New Testament scholar Charles Quarles notes that the Sermon on the Mount is best known in America today as the source of what is one of the most frequently quoted Bible verses. Guess which one? Well, it's in Matthew 5 through 7. You know that. Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. We love that as Americans, right? Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it's the one that's American. Don't tell me what to do and mind your own business, right? Let me get on with my kingdom. Well, brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word and the good news of Jesus Christ is that the life in Christ's kingdom is not about me and my kingdom. It's about what all these men have ignored. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about what Matthew labors in those first four chapters to show us. It's about who Jesus is according to God's word. It's about a life that is in his kingdom, not my kingdom. And it's about a life that is ruled by his word and not my words. And this is where Matthew begins, brothers and sisters. And this is where we must begin. If we're going to rightly understand what God intended when he gave us the Sermon on the Mount through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what theologians give that fancy term, authorial intent. Trying to prime you for logos, okay? It's, it's the idea of we need to come in and understand what did God intend for us 
to do with this word that he's given? How did he intended? How did he intend for us to hear it? How did he intend for us to receive it? How did he intend for us to understand it? Are we submitting? Are we coming under God's word? Or are we standing over it? And are we considering that these words that were given in Matthew's gospel really are meant, brothers and sisters, to save us from our sins by pointing us not to ourselves and what we want or what we think our church should have or do, but to point us back to the only one who's done any good as a man, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about Him, and that's the good news, and that's the joy, and the deliverance of what Ted prayed for this morning. The celebration of a Christian is not celebrating our words or our works or our accomplishments because they fall short of God's glory, well short. It's about celebrating this joy and goodness that the only perfection, the only hope, the only good that we have comes from Jesus. And because of that, we become kinder and more gracious and more forgiving people because we realize this is what Christ has given us with his life and this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. So brothers and sisters, this morning what we're really going to do, this is really kind of a review for you. You've heard some of these things before. It's really to bring us back up to speed and go through a review of the first four chapters of Matthew where Matthew's reminding us this is who Jesus is. So that as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we understand these are his words. They belong to him. And they're meant for people whose lives are focused not on themselves, but on him. They're meant to be about what the Christian life is meant to be about. And that brings us to our first point. That the Sermon on the Mount is the word of God's King, also known as the Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is the word of God's King, also known as the Christ. This is where Matthew's gospel begins. It begins with the words in Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy or the Genesis, or the Genesis, the book, the Biblos of the genealogy, the Genesis, of Jesus Christ. And it's with these words that Matthew, who is a disciple, an apostle, an eyewitness of Jesus, a first century Jew, he's letting everyone know what this gospel is about, and what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about who Jesus is, not according to my words, or what people think, it's who Jesus is according to God's word. And this title that he gives Jesus right from the beginning, you know, we've said this many times, it's not a last name, it's not Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. It's a title that would be familiar to Matthew's original audience, mostly first century Jewish believers in the early church. And they would be familiar with this because it's a title that arises from the Hebrew scriptures of God's promise of salvation and deliverance of his people from their sins through a king. And that's what Christos is, or Christ. Christos is the Greek translation for the Hebrew title for God's chosen king. Messiah, the anointed one. The king whom God has promised. The king whom God has anointed with his spirit. The king who... God has set apart to save his people from their sins. How? By bringing them out of the kingdoms of this world, like Moses, and bringing them into the kingdom of his word. This is what God has promised. This is who the Christ 
is. This is who the Messiah is. So every time Matthew goes and he does it repeatedly over and over and over again. And you see that. Jesus Christ. Or as you go on and read with Paul and others. They say Christ Jesus. They're referring to King Jesus. And it should make us pause and stop. Do you know Jesus in this way? He is a friend of sinners. We sing that. He is kind. He is good. He is a good shepherd. But brothers and sisters, if we miss out on understanding and knowing him as king, we don't know him at all. And any first century God-fearing Jew would recognize that this is what Matthew's gospel and this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It is about a king and his kingdom. And we've got the definitions up here which I have gone over with you before. But we're just kind of anchoring this because as Americans we're not really that familiar with what a king is. It's not really our reality, right? Those are things that are safe for entertainers and athletes, right? Like Michael Jackson, the king of pop, right? And Elvis, the king of rock and roll. It's basically become meaningless. But a king is a ruler who possesses the legal authority, the legal power, and the legal right to rule over a kingdom. And a kingdom is everything that legally belongs to a king. Everything that comes under his rule, his power, his authority. And this includes his people, and this includes his property. And a kingdom consists typically of three things. And it's Mike Vlock and Dr. Barrick who have made this point. A kingdom typically consists, in order to have a kingdom, you need a ruler, a legitimate ruler. You need a rule, a legitimate rule, like the American Constitution, and you need a realm. Okay, three things. A ruler, a realm, and a rule. Okay, many people can call themselves king, but they don't have a rule, and they don't have a realm bigger than their home. Okay, and, and there's not much going on. Well, as you walk through Matthew's gospel, you see he uses words for king and kingdom in those first four chapters. He uses them 16 times. I'm going to give you a lot of numbers, okay? I'm trying to get you primed for Logos. But he goes through and he repeats it over and over again. What do you think he's talking about in those first four chapters? He's talking about a king and his kingdom. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uses words about kings and kingdoms ten times in those two chapters. What do you think Jesus is talking about? And so we see as we walk through Matthew's gospel, and many people have talked about Matthew's gospel as the presentation of Jesus as king. All right, Matthew 1 through 4, he goes through the coming of the king. And Matthew 5 through 7, the king's word. And Matthew 8 through 28, leading up to the cross and the resurrection, the king's work. And what that king accomplishes for his people. But what all first century God-fearing Jews would also know is that Matthew is not writing about just any king or kingdom. And how would they know this? It's because God-fearing first century Jews knew their Bible. And many could even claim to have memorized much of it. At least the Old Testament. And they would know their Bible where the words that were breathed out by the mouth of God and written by His prophets explicitly focused on one major theme. Now, there are many major themes, but what's the central? What's the reigning theme? Well, God's king and God's kingdom is mentioned explicitly in 36 of the 39 Old Testament books in our canon. 
And words used for king and kingdom are used over 3,000 times in the Old Testament. And we lose sight of this. But to first century Jews, this idea of God's king and what a king was and what a kingdom was and how it affected your life was huge. It was important. It affected every aspect of their lives. And they would understand that this is important and that Matthew's not just talking about any king because God wants his people to know, as you read through the Old Testament, who is their king. Who's their king? He is. That's the love he shows his people. This is the fruit of salvation. What's the joy of salvation? God saves his people. He brings them out of Egypt, Pharaoh, the evil king, the ruler of the world, the greatest empire at that time, he is no longer their king because who is their king? That's the good news of the Bible. That God is their king. And then later when Samuel comes and the children of Israel come to Samuel and say, we want a king, Samuel, we want a king. We're tired of you. Your sons are corrupt. And Samuel's grieved and the Lord says to Samuel, do you recall what the Lord says to Samuel? To Samuel, he comforts him and says, really what this is about is they've rejected me as king. Right? God's message in the Old Testament that he's letting his old people know and he, his old covenant people know and he needs to remind them over and over and over again and they forget and they forget and they forget. The goodness, the sweetness, the kindness in your life is that I'm your king. God wanted his people to know that their only hope of salvation from sin in this world is not from the kings and kingdoms of this world. Not from the Caesars or the popes or the megachurches. Woe is the man who makes man his trust, who trusts in chariots and who trusts in horses. Blessed is the man who trusts in who? That their only hope of salvation for every aspect of their life, the food on their table, their friends, their work, their children, as the old covenant people of God, their only hope of salvation is by the king and kingdom of God's word. It's his rule over us. And when first century God-fearing Jews read those opening words of Matthew's gospel, the book of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus Christ, most would appreciate that what Matthew is doing is he's drawing a connection. Jesus Christ, Jesus the king, Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise of a king who will deliver you from your sins. Connection. Jesus of Nazareth. Promised king of God's word. Going all the way back to the very beginning. To Genesis. To the beginning of the story. What's Matthew doing here? He's using good hermeneutics. He's covering the whole counsel of God. He's not taking Jesus' life out of context. And he's considering the whole counsel of God. And when he starts his book and he brings them all the way back to Genesis as does John in his gospel. He's bringing them to the place in God's word where the Lord reveals himself to his people as a ruler and as a king. Very specifically, the holy king of eternity. Before time, space, and matter, God is and God rules. That's what you see from Genesis to Revelation. Who is the king who begins and who is the king who ends? It's God. And how does he rule? He rules by his word. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. And as you get to the end of Revelation, what you see is he affirms, everything I promised has come to pass. 
And in Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord God is showing the people that He is saved. It's not by the words and works of men that good comes. It's by His gracious and kind and merciful and truthful word. And first century God-fearing Jews, they knew this. They knew this from personal experience. They knew this from their history. They knew this from their family's experience. But most importantly, they knew it from God's word. Every book in the Bible. That the only time life is ever truly good. The only time life is ever truly good. One place and one time. It's when God is your king and you are living in the kingdom of his word. It's the only time that life is ever truly good. When God is your king and you're living in the kingdom of his word. And when does life get evil? And when does life get ugly? And when does life get bad? Just go back to the Garden of Eden and all the time that we've been spending in Genesis. It's the moment and it's the second, brothers and sisters, you choose a king and kingdom of your own. The moment you start to walk away from God as your king and his word as your rule and his kingdom, which is ruled by his word, and you say, I'm going to be king and I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to look for a kingdom of my own. And that can be in your marriage, your career, your parenting, or your college experience. It's the moment and second that wickedness and sin begins to rule your heart and your lives. And this is why when you go to the Old Testament over and over again in the Psalms, the cry, the desperation, the hope is crying out to the Lord to be their king. So Psalm 74, 12. Yet God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance and salvation in the midst of the earth. Now if you have your Bibles, turn with me if you would to Psalm 10. And let's read Psalm 10, 16 through 18 together. Psalm 10, verses 16 through 18. The Lord is what? Let me hear you say it. The Lord is king forever and ever, eternal. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Okay, in this psalm, who's the problem? It's the man who is of the earth. Where does terror come from? From the men who are of the earth, from kings who are of the earth, from people who are of the earth. What do we need deliverance from? Brothers and sisters, we need deliverance from one another. Who's the remedy? It's the Lord. But it's the Lord as King forever and ever. And this is something that first century God-fearing Jews who had been through the exile, whose parents had been booted out of the land, who they had witnessed all the promises of God come true for them playing fast and loose like we do in America today, saying that they worship the Lord but worrying about building their own kingdoms 
Okay, and the fruit of that when you go through the prophets is they neglected to take care of the fatherless. They neglected to take care of the oppressed. They neglected to obey God because they had no reverence for God and no fear of God as their king. They were worried about getting their own, getting ahead. They were worried about not getting nothing, right? That's what they were preoccupied by, but they still showed up to the temple. They still offered sacrifices, and the Lord said, look, be not deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. I know that's there in the New Testament, but it's the heart and spirit of the Lord that he's pointing out to them, look, no. And so they had lived through this where God promised, if you continue to do this, my love and my presence and my kingship, the presence of my rule, my Shekinah glory, my presence in your midst, I'm going to remove it. And you are going to go into exile and you're going to be thrown out of the promised land and you will live in exile. And so when Jesus comes, they are ready because they've been crying out through 400 years of silence to hear the voice of the Lord. And they are desperate because they know that the only way that they are going to be saved is if a good king comes to set them free and provide deliverance. And this is what Matthew is talking about in Matthew 1 through 4. Now, if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 1. And look at verses 20 through 23. And what you see as you go through those first four chapters of Matthew is Matthew is walking his readers through, first century Jewish believers, most of them, from Genesis onwards through the scriptures, through the promises of God and God's plan of salvation. And here he's speaking to Joseph. But as he considered these things, this is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from what? Or who? The Holy Spirit. So he's showing Joseph, this child is not from below. This king is not from below. This is a king from above. This is a kingdom from above. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is taken from Isaiah. And they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. As we come to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's point is this is who is speaking the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he has to talk to us about. How we are delivered from our sins. Not by ourselves or our efforts, by him. This is the foundation before you come in. Because many people come to the Sermon on the Mount and they say, okay, it's you do this, you do this. You are this, you are this. And it becomes a list as it became for Gandhi and many of the civil rights people and many of the social justice people and the social gospel people. It becomes this list of all the things we're going to do to make the world a better place. And we've axed off the whole first four chapters and everything that comes after with Jesus' death and resurrection to understand the whole foundation about this is about Jesus bringing people into his kingdom and what life in that kingdom is like after he's brought us in. And this brings us to our second point this morning. 
The Sermon on the Mount is the Word of God's King for the citizens of God's kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the Word of God's King for the citizens of God's kingdom. In Matthew 5 verse 1, Matthew introduces the Sermon on the Mount before Jesus speaks. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Similar to Moses, right? Mount Sinai. And when he sat down, who came to him? His disciples. And he opened his mouth and he taught who? Them. And when you look at these and you say, who is he talking about them? Frequently and more often than not, the person they're referring to is the person last mentioned, the disciples. Now, in the Chen household, there are some people who like to listen in on other people's conversations. Hide out in the stairs, hide out in different places, go quietly, and then partway through the conversation, show up and appear and say, hey, are we going here for vacation? Or did you do this? Or what's this about? And I won't put the blame on me. I'll say, it's a pleasant surprise. And my wife will say, was I talking to you? No, that's not what we're doing as a family, or that's not what we said. And this is what happens when you listen in on conversations where someone is not speaking to you. Right? But brothers and sisters, we laugh about that, but we all do it with God's word. We come into portions of scripture and we listen in on a conversation. We walk away thinking we know what God said and we don't consider who God is talking to. And right here, Matthew makes it clear, contrary to popular belief and wishful thinking, Jesus is not talking to everyone with the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking to everyone in Matthew chapter 4 and his message for everyone is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message is for everybody. Anybody can come. Whatever walk, whatever gender, whatever color of your skin, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here, he's speaking to the disciples. And in fact, as he sees the crowd... That's a circumstantial participle. He's talking about the circumstance that prompt him to go up the mountain or around which he goes up the mountain. And I believe the implication here is when Jesus sees the crowds coming, he doesn't stop and say, what a great opportunity to build a church. We're going to have all these people. Imagine the movement and the website we can build and what we can do and the programs and all the things we're going to accomplish because all these people are here right now. All the things that we get excited about. He leaves. It doesn't mean he doesn't love the crowds. It doesn't mean he doesn't preach to the crowds. But at this time in the moment for the Sermon on the Mount, he's not talking primarily to the crowds. In fact, what his words do, and as you walk through the Sermon on the Mount, from the Beatitudes all the way to the end, where he talks about two roads, two trees, two houses, and one of them's usually good and one of them's usually bad, you see that what Jesus is doing is he's separating his disciples from the crowds with his word. Brothers and sisters, his word separates. It's something that makes us feel very uncomfortable. Oh, church discipline, oh, sanctification, oh, friends and family. Guess what? 
if you're going to be a citizen in his kingdom, his words separate. And that's what the Sermon on the Mountain, people don't understand. Jesus is setting apart what life in his kingdom is like as opposed to life in the kingdoms of this world. And who are the disciples who he is speaking to? Well, Matthew shows us who they are in chapter 4. And his definition and his explanation of who disciples are are markedly different than, let me just say, because we're talking about it, even many leaders in the church. And we have to ask ourselves this. I talk about this with Ricardo. I talk about this with the elders. We talk about for fear of our own walk and our own salvation. How many leaders in ministry get lost in ministry and at the end of it they look back on a period of years where step by step by step they were busy with things in the church and they lost sight of the only one who could protect their souls, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I was out five times a week. I preached however many sermons. I went to the soup kitchen. I went in short-term missions. Yeah, but where was Jesus in all of that? And in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, Matthew shows us that the disciples he's talking about in Matthew's gospel are Jews first who have been given the gospel. They have been called to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as you harmonize this with John's gospel, you see that they were, at least some of them, were at John's baptism. And in all likelihood, they were baptized by either John or Jesus. And when they were baptized, as, works, as is explained in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, it points out that that is a time where people confessed their sins. They publicly demonstrated and admitted to everyone they were not worthy to come into God's kingdom because they were sinners. They were disqualified. And the only way that they could enter into God's kingdom is if God gave them a completely new life. Now let me ask you this. For any of you who have emigrated, I did. I was Canadian. I'm now an American citizen. When you become a citizen in another country, who makes you the citizen in that new country? This is what everybody's hot and bothered about with immigration law here. It's, it's the country and the legal authority that you enter, right? You can say you're an American citizen, but unless the American government and the Department of Immigration and Naturalization Services comes and validates and says, we have made you a citizen of the United States of America. You're not. Brothers and sisters, you can say you're a Christian all you want. If you have not been called to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if you have not responded by faith and obedience to that command, if you have not been called to follow Christ and if you have not responded by faith, in leaving everything to follow Jesus. If you are not walking with Jesus, because that's what the disciples were doing in the end of chapter 4. Jesus preaches and teaches. He heals and does miracles. And he ministers to the people. And with him at that time are those who have, by faith and obedience and through repentance, turned from their sins and said, I'm not worthy of the kingdom. Jesus, you're going to have to make me a citizen and bring me into the kingdom. I'm with you. And those who are walking with him, these 
are what Matthew refers to as disciples, and these are who Jesus is speaking to. They're people who Jesus is making into citizens of his kingdom. And that's why he teaches this sermon, and that's why there's the you, 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 because he's letting them know as they come into the kingdom what it means to belong to Jesus, what it means to be with him, what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, the kingdom of God's word, and not being a citizen of the kingdom of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, we know this, and we know some of the big discouragements, and we've been, I've been them. Where people can't tell the difference between our worldly success and our love for Christ. They see the car, they see the houses, they see all of those different things. But brothers and sisters, do they see the life of Christ? And this brings us to our final point for the morning. The Sermon on the Mount is the word of God's King about the life of His kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the word of God's King about the life of His kingdom. The life of Christ and the life of His word. Now as you read through this Sermon on the Mount and if you read any commentaries, you'll see that there are many many controversies among Christian scholars. They're divided. In fact, you'll become incredibly confused. Maybe you won't. I certainly was in seminary, okay? Because some of them say, okay, this is impossible to keep. How can you possibly do everything that Jesus says? Turn the other cheek. Not lust after a woman in your heart. Not be angry with someone else. How can you possibly do any of these things? And so many Christian scholars have come and said, this is not for now. This is for the future when Jesus comes again. And there are others, civil rights movement, social God. Well, no, this is for now. We've got to do this ethic now. We've got to do this all here. But what we forget, brothers and sisters, as we look at this, And many times when the Christian life is hard, we toss it out, right? The Christian life is not complicated, brothers and sisters. It is hard. That's why Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him pick up his cross and follow me. That's why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in ministry, suffer with me for the gospel in 2 Timothy. The words that Jesus is speaking are the words of God's king for the citizens of God's kingdom who haven't entered into God's kingdom on their own, but their lives have been transformed. And what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about his life. The life he came, the life he will die for, and the life he will give To those he has saved. And so what you see as you walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Is the beginning and where it begins. And what Jesus will complete and he will do. And bring to a completion when we either die or we see him face to face. And so as you walk through the rest of the Gospels. And as you read through you will see that all these character qualities. Jesus himself will exemplify. Does Jesus turn the other cheek? Indeed he does. 
And he does so on the cross as they crucify him. And though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Does he go the extra mile? Indeed he does. He's asked to pay the temple tax, even though he's the Lord of the temple and he pays the temple tax. Does he mourn over our sin? Indeed he does. Is he a man who is meek? Yes, he is. Is he persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Absolutely. Is he a light for the world? Is he the city on the hill? Is he the salt that does not lose its savor, but instead preserves and cares for? He is all of those things. And so we see in the Sermon on the Mount, The beauty here is that Jesus is explaining to his disciples. Your life is going to be my life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now when we hear that term eternal life we think okay life that's never going to end. But I've got news for you, brothers and sisters, and it's good news for me. The life that's not going to end is not the life that we have now. Filled with sin, filled with sadness, filled with sorrow. He's talking about a life that has come from above. He's talking about God's pure and holy life. A life that will never tarnish or corrupt and will last forever. A life that gives life and love and goodness and gives to others rather than takes And a life, yes indeed, that will last forever because it is God's life. And brothers and sisters, the life of the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's life. And this is the life that he gives to those he saves. And so that brings us to a final question, brothers and sisters. What is your life about? Is it about your kingdom? Or is it about Christ's kingdom? Have you entered in? Has your life been changed? Have you been transformed? You can't do it yourself. Only Christ can do it. This is Matthew's testimony. He's the king with the power and authority to give you an entirely new life and to deliver you from the kingdoms of men, whatever it may be in your life. Your job, your career, your family, the schools your kids go to, whatever it is. And to bring you into his kingdom so that you can sit at his feet. So that he can be God with us. And so that he can not only speak to you, but he speaks to you with words that give you an entirely new life. A life that comes from above. Brothers and sisters, kings in this world are meaningless to Americans. But in the ancient Near East and in the Roman Empire... Who your king was mattered. If your king had a good life, you would have a good life. If you had a bad king, you would have a bad life. If you had a violent king, you would be going to war all the time. Your life, every aspect, depended on the one who ruled over your life. And we've lost sight of that. And as we come back, the good news of the Sermon on the Mount for those who belong to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is that our lives do indeed depend entirely, not on our lives, our works, or our accomplishment, or our sin, but on the life and work 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words. We thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your love and care for us. Lord, help us this day to consider, are we indeed citizens of your kingdom? Is the life that we live your life or is it ours? Do we need to hear that call? Do we need to repent? Do we need to turn to you? Do we need to leave some things behind? Are we willing to surrender this life, Lord Jesus, so that we can share and be united with yours? In your name we pray, amen.